Well, hello, friends. I'm here with author KB Hoyle, and uh, she's been gracious enough to join us as we continue to just cultivate what it means for us as a church to, to honor artists and to listen to them. And uh, I'm so excited for you uh, and for me, frankly, to, to hear a little bit more about uh, her work, about some of the influences and what, what has inspired her to, to move towards uh, these certain ways of writing, these certain uh, mediums. And so, KB, thanks so much for joining us, first of all. Thanks for having me on. I'm happy to be here. So grateful you're here. Um, so I, I do just want to give you some space to introduce what you do, uh, some of the work that you've done. And, and so could you just give us, uh, you know, the snapshot of, I, I know you have a couple different series uh, and some other places that you're writing. So where, just kind of on the front end here, where can people find you and maybe some, some brief summaries of, of some of those works? Yeah. Okay. So as you mentioned, I'm an author. Um, I write primarily for young adults but everybody seems to be reading young adult these days. So uh, don't let that deter you from picking up one of my books. Um, <laughs> I have written, this always gets a little tricky for me because I'm trying to remember everything that I've written because everything I've written is unfortunately not published yet. Um, I have written something like 12 novels, but 10 of them are currently published. I have a six book fantasy series that's kind of geared towards that teen audience, teen tween audience. Um, and that series is called The Gateway Chronicles. Uh, and that's about a group of teenagers who uh, go to a summer camp and they stumble through a magic gateway to another world and discover that lo and behold, they've been expected for hundreds of years to show up and save the day. Um, and I had some fun uh, working with the uh, gateway fantasy kind of trope um, and what it would mean. You know, everyone's kind of familiar with that because of Narnia. Um, but, you know, working with what that would mean for a group of 13 year old American teenagers, you know, how would they handle um, being dumped in another world and not being able to use, you know, smartphone technology and things like that? How would they respond to magic? How would they respond to this notion that um, you know, hey, there's this big evil force and, and you have to take care of it. Um, and uh, that's, you know, the, that's the meta narrative. Uh, so the six books in that series, each book follows a year um, in the adventure. So they go, they get stuck there for a year. And then um, there's a little bit of time traveling involved because when they go back, they um, go back to the exact same point in time at which they left. Um, so there's that series. And then I also have a four book dystopian series. Um, people always kind of look at me funny and say dystopian. What is that? Um, and then I say, oh, it's like the Hunger Games. And then people go, oh, okay. So, you know, dystopian is a futuristic society where everything has gone wrong. Um, and my series is set, three of the books are set about 200 years in the future. Uh, and then one of them is a prequel novel that's supposed to be set you know, about 30 years ish in the future from where we are now. Ironically, it deals with the pandemic. I did not know where we were going to be <laughs> <laughs> when um, I when I published it, and I you know I published the prequel novel um, like at the very end of 2019, and then 2020 hit, and I was like, oh man, <laughs> this, is, this is too real. Um, so that that just deals with. Um, me playing around with concepts the whole series deals with me playing around with concepts of you know 
what if there were three great devastations that hit the earth? Um, where did they come from? How did aspects of humanity survive? Um, what do they mean? How does, uh, how do people rise up and overthrow an oppressive government? Uh, and it, which are very common, um, again, dystopian themes, which, you know, you read a, you pick up a dystopian novel, you're looking to find certain things. So um, that's what I did, but I tell a unique story while doing that. And then um, the prequel novel tells the story of one of the devastations. Um, it actually does not tell a story of the pandemic, but the pandemic is mentioned. Um, and then it, um, it, it kind of talks about how the world fell into being in a dystopian state. So I have those two series um, currently available and some other books that are finished and I'm looking for new agent representation at this time. So I'm shopping things around. Um, I also write for a publication, online publication called Christ and Pop Culture. I have a column called Storied uh, that publishes usually every other week on Tuesdays where I analyze stories wherever they're found, television, movies, um, books sometimes, sometimes I'll write about a song. That's pretty rare though. Just felt I should toss that out there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm kind of I, all over doing lots of things. Um, oh, I have a website, kbhoyle.com. That's where you can find links That's to good. all my things. That's good. Thank you for all that. I know people usually put that at the end. I'm always like, well, like, you know, not everybody listens to the end. Right. So. If someone gets bored, they're going to leave. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now so. we got that. Everybody can. And, and, you know, I trust this audience can also use Google. So uh, right. please, KB Hoyle, um, find her work. And we're so, again, so grateful that you're here and, and just really want to explore some of these intersections of I'm a fantasy writer, dystopian writer. I mean, and, you know, follower of Jesus and trying to, to sort of tell the story in such a way that invites people in. And this, this has a long and uh, storied history of its own. You know, Jesus came telling stories and, yep. you know, maybe we'll get into some of the reasons of that. But I do want to just talk about the, so your journey as a writer and your sense, you know, William Stafford, the poet talks about, he's like, all of us are born poets, just some of us never stop. And, and is, so did you have that sense of just like, this has always been something that's been kind of in your orbit or was this something that you kind of stumbled into or what, what was that journey like? Cause you began to say, you know, I'm a writer. Oh yeah. No, this was, this was always in my orbit. Um, I was the child. I'm always telling this story every time I go on um, podcasts and do, you know, talks at schools and whatnot. I mean, not this past year, but um, I, I, was the, I was the child who um, read the Chronicles of Narnia and wanted, you know, I would go into my closet and push on the back wall to try to get to Narnia. Not that I believed that Narnia actually existed. You know, the rational part of my brain knew there was no such place as Narnia. But Lewis wrote in such a way that his stories had an inner consistency of reality. Um, they felt real. Even though, even as a very young child, I knew that it was fantasy. Um, I wanted to capture that same feeling 
uh, to recapture that same feeling, to feel that way over and over again. And I knew intrinsically, and I, you know, Lewis is the first author I can recall who did this um, for me. I knew intrinsically that it could be found in stories. And um, as I, 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 so I was, I found it in reading, but then I also found it in writing, most especially because I'm always telling kids like, y'all don't know how good you have it these days. You've got tons of, you know, great fantasy literature to choose from, because for me, it was more fantasy than other genres, although it exists in other genres too. But I was like, when we were kids, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how old you are, but you know, I'm 38 when I was a child of the nineties and, you know, born in 83. And it's like, there wasn't much to choose from in the way of of really good fantasy literature. It was like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, The Hobbit, and um, George MacDonald had some stuff out there, um, Madeline Leangle, but it was like you would read what was there and then you would just go back and reread because there, there it just wasn't a booming, you know, um, genre of literature for children. Um, and so it was hard to, find stories that really scratched that itch of feeling um you know lewis calls it sensuct that 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 place that idea that that you are looking for this home that you've um that you've a longing for home that a place you've not yet been to but you know but it's but it is home and so i had this keen awareness that i wanted to write stories like that partially because I couldn't find more stories like that. And so I kept having to reread the ones that I loved. Um, and I loved Harry Potter when it came out, but I was older when Harry Potter came out. I was, I was a teenager and um, Harry Potter did the same thing for me. But again, I was, I was a teenager when it came out. So it wasn't the same thing as being a very young child. Um, I'm waiting for my owl from Hogwarts. So I... Um, started writing my first novel when I was um, like 12 years old. You know, I just wow. sat down and started trying to do it. Um, I did eventually finish that. I mean, it took me like 10 years, but I did, <laughs> did eventually finish that <laughs> book. Um, it's terrible as you would expect, but it, you know, I did it. Mm. So it, it was, it was a longing that was with me my whole life. Mm-hmm that's that's really beautiful and i, I want to get into a couple of things you said like this sense of like saturation of story right and so we've already talked about like you you do not only you you create stories but you're also reflecting on you know just the like the inundation of story that we have like every week netflix is like hey you know you might yeah. try this did you like or, that you like this too yeah that's right or now there's 40 other streaming services that, you know, maybe someday somebody will bundle them all together and I guess we'll have cable again, but <laughs> you know, it's like this sense of like story in our modern world is almost like, it's just like everywhere. And even then, so you have social media where then every, everybody is offering their personal narratives and cult, you know, really cultivating uh, their personal image and you know that's kind of what social media is it's like here's what i want you to see and so you have this like just complete saturation and so for you as somebody who is a caretaker of stories like what what how do you see the the this purpose of modern like of story in the modern world 
like what does it mean for stories to to mean something in our day and age when there's just so many of them you know it can be really difficult to find the good ones because mm. we have an oversaturation um and sometimes what is good goes overlooked because we have so much um boy i have a lot of thoughts about this now i need to <laughs> kind of sift through what does it mean what does story mean in the modern age? Well, okay, let me kind of go back to the basic. Let me just kind of stick to the basic question here first. Um, story shapes culture, but story is also mm. a reflection of culture. Um, I think about this often as a writer of young adult literature, which is really anything from middle grade, which is intended for, you know, ages eight to 12, to new adult, which is intended for college age adults. Mm -hmm. So when I think about story and story's importance in shaping and reflecting culture, um, and I think about that umbrella of young adult age group and stories. Um, it kind of makes me a little upset sometimes because the young adult yeah. audience is often looked down, looked down on because mm. um, as, as if the stories that are written for them are not serious stories. They're not worth, they're not worthy of serious um, reflection serious review, serious contemplation. If you write for a young adult audience, um, you must not be, you know, a, a, a serious storyteller. Because if, mm -hmm. you know, if you were, you'd be writing, you know, high art for adult audiences and things of that sort. Yeah. This is a prevalent attitude. And so young adult literature um, well, and if we're trying to talk about like Christian publishing, mm -hmm. uh, young adults have been largely abandoned by Christian publishing that's for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but the, there's this sort of, I mean, when it comes to fiction publishing, at least. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm not really even sure. I mean, publishing is a business. And so this idea that we can't make money selling books to young adults, we've tried that and they, the books didn't sell. And so there's just, there's no young adult divisions or very few young adult divisions in Christian specific publishing houses. And there are all sorts mm -hmm. of reasons for that. But when I bring all this around, um, it's not a Christian problem. It's not a general market problem, Christian specific problem or general specific market problem stumbling over my words a little bit as I form my answer. Um, no, it's all right. But young adult, the young adult audience is, to, in my opinion, and I know I'm biased because I write for them, but the, the most important audience to reach mm. with stories. And it's, you know, it, it, a trope, but, you know, kids shape the future. Mm -hmm. And the attitudes, what teenagers believe, 
So again, just kind of take the middle of the market from eight to 25 or 26, wherever new adult ends, teenagers, what they believe is being formed much more by the stories they consume, mm -hmm. whether it's books, television, music, video games or stories as well, you know, movies, yeah. what they're seeing on TikTok and whatnot. These are all kind of under the story umbrella. All of that is being shaped by the stories they consume um, in, a, in a much larger way than people want to admit. Um, maybe it's not that they don't want to admit it, that, that, that it's just ignored. Mm -hmm. um, so reaching young adult audiences with good stories or even just paying attention to the stories that they're consuming and treating mm -hmm. them as, you know, art, acknowledging the artistry that goes into reaching that audience, um, that will change, that will shape the future. I don't, I probably shouldn't use the word change because I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to engage in any sort of culture war here. I don't. <laughs> Getting away from cultural yeah. language. Yeah. We'll, they will shape we'll those to other people. Yeah. I'm yeah. done with all that. I grew up right. in that and done with all that. Um, <laughs> but it, it shapes the future. Yeah. The attitudes the kids that 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 like adult people have right now, especially as we mm -hmm. look at um the deconversions and the deconstructions and all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. is it massively affected by um books, TV movies and music that people were engaged in mm -hmm. 20 years ago so. yeah and it's it, it is the the sense of you know gk chesterton talks about you know a world with dragons you know a world with with monsters and like what it means to live in such a world you know where obviously at some point you give up the the ghost and as you said like you stop pushing on the back wall looking for narnia right. but you're still left with this sense of being dropped into the middle of, of, of a conflict and you know mm -hmm. the nature of that conflict will, will be worked out and we as modern people often struggle with the idea of powers and principalities and what what those entail but but there is this sense if you read the new testament that you know you're dropped in the middle of this thing as a, as a follower of the way of jesus and so okay you know then you have this sense of of story and and fantasy and so like beginning to say like, okay, what does it mean for me to inhabit a world such as this? And uh, to, to begin to explore this world. And I, I do want to get to that with you because the thing I was, I started reading the Gateway Chronicles and especially I started with the first novel and, and I'm always amazed um, as somebody, I'm a bit of a novice in the genre of fantasy, <laughs> but one of the things that always blows me away is the 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 extent to which people create worlds so you're you, and and you do this so well in the book and i want to talk about that like so it, it is so much reflective of god in genesis 1 sort of joyfully narrating the creation you're doing that so how do you like you go from this cursor that's that's blinking on a page to i'm gonna have this world that in some way makes sense right it may be fantastical it may be something that obviously we know can't exist at least in our conception 
but you're going to make this place. Like, how do you even begin to start that construction? What is that process like? Okay. Um, world building. Uh, well, the world is built around um, characters. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's a give and take. It's, it's a push and pull. And um, there's a lot of discipline that has to go into building your world before you put pen to paper. Um, and boy, this answer will be different. Whatever author you talk to, their answer is going to be different. You know, and I don't want to be that sort of person that says there's only one right way to do this. And if you do it a different way, it's wrong. Um, with the Gateway Chronicles, I had the benefit that the location um, of the camp in the story, the camp is called Cedar mm-hmm. Cove in the story. The location is based on a real place. Um, a camp, a camp that I have been to over 20 times. I mean, I went to this camp every summer of my life growing up. Um, so it was very dear and precious to me and it lives inside my brain and I can see every detail, you know, every flower, every rock. So the, the physical location itself, um, you know, fantasy elements aside, obviously the fantasy elements are built in, but you know, it was very easy to describe. But that's not really what you're talking about when you talk about world building, you know, building, constructing a world that is believable. Um, I always say it's like the movie Inception. Um, have you ever seen Inception? Yeah, sure. Okay. So there's this sequence in Inception where um, the, the main character's name is, is you've got Cobb and you've got Arthur and they're teaching um the new architect to um, her name is Ariadne in, in, the, in the movie and they're teaching her to construct dreams. But what they're basically teaching her to do is to build illusions. And mm-hmm. um, the movie is kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge the viewer because what Christopher Nolan is doing, he's, ra- he's, he's really telling the audience of the movie itself, um, here's how you create false worlds. Here's how you world build. Um, you have, because when you're writing a story, you are dealing with an audience that knows they're stepping into a reality that's not real, but you want to create secondary belief for the reader while they're in the story. You want them to suspend disbelief when they enter into your story. I mean, like, like, you know, it's not a real place, but when you're in the story, you want to believe that it's a real place while you're reading the story. Anytime you have something, you, you don't want the reader to run up against the walls of the world because if they run up against the walls of the world, um, like, you know, like in the Truman show, he, he hits yeah. the wall of the world, right? That great scene where the boat hits mm-hmm. the wall of the world and, mm-hmm. and then he gets out of the boat and he walks and he opens the door and he leaves. You don't want that to happen with your reader because all of us, you know, then they don't buy it. And if I hit a point in the book where I'm like, why didn't the character just do this? Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> the classic horror movie where like, just, just run out the front door. Yeah, just run out the front door <laughs> or run sideways away from the boulder. Which, you know, which like, may be part of the walls of a horror movie. I'm not sure, but. It's there, yeah. There are certain expectations you have with certain books. Yeah. And there are things that you forgive in certain stories because certain stories are certain ways 
but you really, as, as a writer, the thing is we are, as you know, Tolkien had uh, invented the world sub creators. We're sub creators. We're not creators. We're not God. Mm -hmm. I cannot create an infinite reality, but what I can do going back to the movie inception is I can create tricks, you know, staircases that don't go anywhere, but you don't want the, the reader to figure out that they're on a staircase that doesn't go anywhere. You want to create an infinite loop. And so in the pre-writing, I am a, I am a um, diligent pre-writer and planner. Mm -hmm. I mean, charts upon charts upon charts. And I write using chiasms um, to make things mirror each other. And I loop mm -hmm. things and color coding. And you, you just want to create, you're creating an illusion so that the reader doesn't come up against something that is the, the wall of the reality. Because when that happens, they can no longer suspend disbelief. Mm -hmm. And then either they put the book down and walk away from it and don't come back to it, or they just get mad at you, you know? And in the, you yeah. know, on, on the odd occasion that they, they come across something because you're only human, you know? You yeah. want them to be able to make a leap of logic and mm -hmm. forgive you for it. And every now and then you wink, you wink at your, um, your reader and you're like, I know this doesn't really work, but we're going to pretend it works because this is a fantasy world. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. you, you build uh, MacGuffins into the story to be used in certain ways. Um, I'll never forget the story of uh, Viggo Mortensen on the set of The Lord of the Rings. His, I think it was his first day there and they gave him a sword or something. And they were like, ah, do this and battle these guys running at you. And he turned to the sword master and he said, you know, if I, if I really swung the sword at these guys like this, they wouldn't actually fall down like that. And the sword master looked at him and said, oh, yes, but this is not real life. This is the movies. And every now <laughs> and then you have to do things like that. Mm. Yeah. And it's as you're talking like too, just the sense of like, and obviously like, so we want to, we want to distinguish where the comparisons fall short, but like you really just hear these echoes of Genesis one. Right. So as the author, like, okay, so you're God's not creating an illusion in Genesis one. Right. But he is creating an alternate reality in many ways. You know, Genesis one sort of is, is classically understood is, is, is God building a temple for himself. And where, where does the, the, the one who made the world, where does he dwell? Well, he dwells in, in all the earth. Like he takes up rest and, you know, people, you know, first or uh, ancient Near Eastern people reading these kinds of accounts would have known that when gods take up rest, they don't do it. They're not on a couch being lazy. Right. They're, they're taking up rest in a temple on a throne. Yeah. And, but what God is doing, if you read that closely, is he's ordering, separating yeah. things. He's making things work together. And yeah. as you're describing that, I hear so much of that. I think there's such a beauty there, like that reflects our impulse to be, you know, as we're made in the image of God yeah. uh, to, to establish. And again, this word, especially in our sort of power narrated world where we're dubious of anything, but established dominion doesn't mean to be, uh, you know, to, to be recklessly using something, not using something to serve our ends, but to steward it, to care yeah. for it. And, and I loved what you said about characters, because that's sort of the next question I always have is the element of naming. Yeah. It's like, how do you, when you're staring at a, you know, everyone from the main character in the story to the, you know, to the, the character that's going to play such a minor role, how do you say like, that's the name? Like, what's that process like? 
Uh, pretty complicated. One, well, I, I wanted to, I mean, really quick to return to something you just said though. Yeah. And this will feed into the naming question. Um, as a Christian who writes, I it, just knowing that God is a God of order and not of randomness mm-hmm. is one of the main reasons why I am so careful about how I plan my books before I write them and why I use certain techniques like using a chiasm to plan my books uh, or to plot the books, narratives and things like that. Um, I don't believe in randomness in stories. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe that that's a, a, a way for me to properly steward the narrative to borrow another word that you just used. Um, you know, if, if I have a good idea and it's worth writing, it's worth telling the story, then I need to, I believe I need to do it properly um, to the best of my ability with excellence. Um, and so the story should be ordered um, and logical, rational. Um, and that comes down to, you know, it's, it's a story structure thing. Uh, it's a narrative thing, it's a world building thing. And it, it's down to every little detail, like even naming characters. Mm-hmm. Um, every now and then I'll choose a name. This is rare for me. Every now and then I'll choose a name just because I like it, but that's rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm very particular about names because um, a name tells, tells you who a person is, you know, who they are and um, what sort of person they might be, or it tells you something about um, a characteristic that they have. Um, you know, every time God changed a person's name in scripture, it meant something. Um, mm-hmm. So I just think it's, it's important. Sometimes it's just to have fun. Some of the names, you know, they all, even, even if they mean something, sometimes it's just for the fun of it. Um, I have some names that are puns. If you know what the, you know, if you know what they mean in the Greek, um, things like that. So I don't think you've run across any of those yet. Okay. They come later in the series. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep my eye out for them. So yeah, I can take or, a or Greek, uh, Greek final. <laughs> like, oh man, yeah. miss that one too. They, I work in um, some of my favorite authors' names. Mm-hmm. Uh, or nods to various people. We have a, oh, that's great. And Alethea, like the, the, the land, you know, yeah. meaning, meaning, you know, truth. Yep. Yep. And so, I mean, you certainly have that uh, element there, which is not exactly a pun, but it's, it's beautiful in that way. Yeah. Um, almost every single name in Alethea means something to tell you about who the person is or where, what the place is, what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do that with, with every character that um, I name straight on to the end of the end of the series. So, um, and you can tell when a name fits and when it, when it doesn't. Yeah. So yeah, Alethea means truth. Um, and um, Yato Valley's name is um one of the characters uh, in the book for those who who are soon to read it yes um i have these these fantasy creatures that are elf like but they are one it's it's two different people two different consciousnesses um it's always a word i can't say um (laughs) that inhabit the same body um and one is awake at night and one is awake 
during the day. So you have a night narc and a day narc. Um, and they have different names. So it's a double name for the, the character. So Yato is the, is the, the main narc that you've met so far. Um, there will be others as the series goes on. Well, you've got Boito Vesa as well, but um, there will be others as the series goes on. But um, Yato um, means blue. Um, and it means the color blue, but obviously he's just, he's kind of a puddle glom sort of character. Mm -hmm. And then um, Veli, trying to, I named these characters like 12 years. 12 years ago, something like that. Belly means um, like pleasant or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, this isn't any sort of like great, you know, artist, artistic thing that I was doing and naming them. I was just having fun. But I tend to keep journals of um, possible character names because I've written so many books now and I'm always working on books. Well, and, and right now, I've uh, the, one of the books I'm trying to, I'm querying to agents is, um, set um it's a kind of like a Madeline Lee Engel sort of, of story where it's it's science fantasy so it's it takes place in outer space but it's really a fantasy story but it just happens to be set in outer space so mm -hmm. I'm digging into um a lot of that medieval um astronomical symbolism which Lewis did a lot of in the Chronicles of Narnia as well mm -hmm. so I'm having fun with the names there just choosing yeah you know, planetary names that have spiritual meanings and symbolic meanings and things like that. So. Yeah. And it's like, just hearing you talk like too, like even just like saying like some of these names are playful and you just like, again, like Genesis two, like, I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're now transliterating past like, Oh, you know, who, what language did Adam speak? We got no idea. <laughs> But like, you know, you look at some of these names of even the animals in the English, like kangaroo, like what is that? Like hippopotamus, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, obviously that's from a Greek word, but like, it's like, there, there is this sense where there's this playfulness and it, I'm, I'm fascinated sort of by the, you know, we talked about kind of the world building element, which is like the, the Genesis one kind of ordering the creation. Then you sort of enter into the story, even as the writer in Genesis two, where you're, you're, you're more modeling the, the, the vocation of humanity and like what it means to, to name something and what it means to be, to, to have that kind of intimacy at some level where it's like, I know you can't name from a distance. Um, and, and there's a sense of like, I know what this character is and not real sure what the character will become, but I at least have a sense for what that will be uh, at this point. Um, how does that particular element play out as far as characters? Um, when, when you start, I, I know you mentioned you're a meticulous planner, but, but is there a point where characters really do take on a life of their own? And you're like, well, this, this person would would choose that even though maybe the story was sort of going this way how does that how's that interplay been in your experience well yes and no um yes characters will take on a life of their own i mean if they don't you have a problem you have an underdeveloped character mm. um and so you 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 need to figure out if that's even a character that's needed in the story because chances are they're just a meat slab taking up space Okay, mm. and you could you could probably just absorb them into another person. Um, but I just called somebody. That's dark. I know. <laughs> um, no. Okay. So 
but no, because like I always think authors sound a little crazy when they say things like, well, I was, I was gonna have this happen, but then my, my character told me otherwise. My character <laughs> decided to do this. I'm like, no, they didn't. Your character does not exist. They, you are the author. You are in charge of the story. If mm -hmm. you, you know, your character is not talking to you, is not making independent choices. Like that's not a thing that happens, everybody. Okay. Um, so here's something that, um, works into me being a, a plotter and um, how that decides how my characters, this, the decisions that my characters make and things of that sort. And this also um, addresses the false dichotomy between um, is your story plot driven or character driven? If you think your story is either plot driven or character driven and it's not both, you have a problem because your story should be, like the, the plot should be so deeply woven with your characters that um, you know the answer should be yes if people say is your story plot or character driven yes okay um, my um, stories the gateway chronicles is told using an alchemical outline so it's a each one is a chi but then I also use an alchemical model, which means that the main character, Darcy, um, acts as the prima materia in the story and she needs to be transformed. And there are various characters throughout the story. Um, it's a process of sanctification. So each book, mm -hmm. she goes through three stages of sanctification, Negredo, Albedo, and Rubedo. There are various characters in the story who have to act in various ways to help her on her journey, right? Um, and at various points in the story. So that dictates their actions to a certain degree. Now, all the pantser writers out there, pantsers are people who write by the seat of their pants and they don't plot at all, are screaming <laughs> inside right now, like, oh, this is, it's so constricting. I need to just, mm. you know, sit down and write and let the story direct me, okay? But that's, there's nothing constricting about writing the way I'm describing to you. It is freeing. In fact, to me, it is the way that we move and act in this world, which is that we don't have, we have free will, of course, you know, we're gonna get a little too theological here, you know, get into some sovereignty issues. We have free will, of course, but freedom, you know, freedom and free will doesn't mean that we just get to do whatever we want all the time. That's not freedom. That's actually bondage. That's slavery. If we just, you know, are driven by our passions to do whatever we want. I don't let my characters do whatever they want. They have to do what I tell them to do. And within the constraints of the fact that, okay, this is Darcy's albedo stage. This is her purification. You know, these chapters cover her purification stage. She needs help to get from, you know, point, you know, A to point B here. Um, and we're gonna have these things happen in the story. Then these characters are albedo characters, you know, side characters that I bring in here. Um, 
And I might say, well, I've named this character and I might even determine which characters, which side characters I bring into those chapters. Mm-hmm. You know, I might say, Sam is her best good friend. Sam would be a great person to help Darcy through this challenge that she has to overcome to get through the albedo stage in this book. So Can you that- define that term, albedo? Albedo is purification. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, and it's so much fun too, because there's all these, all this symbolism involved, mm-hmm. color symbolism and things that they can go through. And that thing is you don't even have to be familiar with this type of storytelling for it to act on you in um, yeah. subliminal ways to be very satisfying to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when you read the story, you close it and you feel like, Oh, that was a good book. Because you're 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 watching a character go through sanctification. Yeah. Um, and it has also to, it ties in also with what characters are named, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes the names have symbolic meaning. Sometimes the names have informed me about what this character is going to be like. In book two, I bring in a character who I named Takala, which means fox, and I named him that just whimsically because I said he's really handsome. The girls think he's foxy, so I just named him Fox in the Greek. But then that starts to inform me about what his personality might be like. Maybe he's a little rascally. Maybe he's a little sly. And then that tells me, okay, maybe I should bring him in and have him talk in this scene or do this or that in that scene because, oh, this is this type of scene and I need a character who does this to be active here. And that's the whole plot of the story though. So Darcy's sanctification becomes the plot of the story, but it's Mm -hmm. all wrapped around her character development. You know, and, and to kind of like, so bring this back full circle to where we started, this kind of like saturated with story world that we live in. Yeah. And really like when you look at it, stories in our world serve the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're always trying to find a story that can make meaning for us and really make meaning in such a way that, that it actualizes us, you know, self-actualization, yeah. it, it represents something. But I love the, the, the tandem, the parallel, the sort of a dialectic to use a nice theological phrase that you're, you're running with where it's like character driven and plot driven. Yes. And this sense of, you know, design, no, it's not constrictive. No, you know, and that's where some of the, the parallels between the, the narrator, the author and the, the, the creator God break down. I mean, Jesus gives us this, this almost like, almost like fearsome free will where you're like, you really trust us a lot. But at the same time, like when we live in line, aligned with the plot that God has, you know, ordered into the world, then the story has this movement and this beauty. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, I've tried to read James Joyce's Ulysses 40 times. It's like, it's fantastic in some ways. In other ways, it's not a book I keep picking up. Like, I love what it does with language, but that's sort of the extent of it. I'm not like, man, I just, I feel so moved right now. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm almost like, it's like, like watching somebody play really intense jazz or like prog rock where you're like, I could never do that on a guitar. However, I'm not sure I'd ever want to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I walk away from, you know, JK Rowling or when I walk away from a world and you're like that moved me there was something going on you talk about like a plot like sanctification like there's something in- incredible to that that we can that we can tell the story without having to 
like, you know, over spiritualize it. And I, you know, probably for another time, would love to get your thoughts on Christian publishing and the way Christians approach fiction specifically, uh, which is usually just full of like really bad metaphors. <laughs> it's like, or, or like maybe not even quite metaphor. Um, but that's probably, that would probably take us into some cynical territory there. Yeah. I just, um, I but, just published an article today. I don't, I don't know when you're going to post this podcast, but just today I published um, my column um, for Christ in pop culture and called thinking Christianly about telling stories. Mm. I go into what you just mentioned. That's excellent. We should Google that for sure. <laughs> um, that's uh, uh, yeah, I'm just so fascinated by that because we, we've seen, again, as you, you mentioned, like just the acceleration and the availability of story, yeah. it almost becomes like, it almost becomes too much at some point. And like, yeah. how do we curate that? Um, you know, maybe it's not a great thing that Spotify can literally give us every song ever recorded. Like that, that, that level of freedom becomes constricting because it becomes paralyzing. Uh, yeah. And so that, that element of plot driven, like, what are we living into? Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's amazing to me too, how we have, I, th I think people have lost the, speaking so generally, I was going to say, I think people have lost the ability to determine <laughs> what is a good story. That's so general yeah. though. That's, that's a throwaway thing that I just so said. Maybe Maybe the way to ask the question is what, what to you holds as a, as a good story and, and how can you call it good? I think we've lost the, the willingness to determine, to say something is good and thus to say maybe some other things are not. The, one of the problems is, um, is that we are a consumeristic culture. And so we just mm -hmm. consume, consume, consume. And um, we, it, people are always just looking for the next thing to they're, they're searching for a high. And maybe it's that same sense that that feeling, you know, that I described as a child of, of getting to Narnia for the first time as it were. Um, and you know, the Harry Potter generation who, who, you know, cause Harry Potter really did capture that same feeling for, for many people. It's not always, there is a subjective side of course to art. Mm -hmm. um, I will always maintain there's an objective nature to what makes art good. And for me, that largely is, is it true? Is it beautiful? And if it is true and it is beautiful, then we can call it good. Um, mm -hmm. But with so much at our fingertips all the time and people always chasing after, um, you know, we, people get a book, they sit down, they read it in four hours. Okay. Done with that. Next one. And it's, they call everything good. Everything is, you know, five heart emojis and you know, there's, they don't really, but, it, but, it, but is it really that good? Like, mm -hmm. um, everybody loves everything a thousand times, especially teenagers, bless their hearts. You know, <laughs> I love them, but, um, we need more, um, we need more studies of the classics to be able to determine what's actually good and what's being published today. We need more studies of, um, worldwide, um, classics and so not just Western classics, but people need to read more widely from 
diverse authors around the world to get a more global perspective on um, uh, just, just a better global perspective on, on what is storytelling is um, to be able to better determine what makes a good story. Um, and I think I lost track of what your actual question was and if I That's answered right. it or not. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I, I think that's it. Like, you know, just I, what you said, I think is so, it's, it's so helpful. Like, uh, again, there's always a subjective element, but it's still like, uh, how can we call something beautiful and true? And, you know, what does that say to its, to its worth uh, as a piece of art? Yeah. Um, I, I do want to just, because we have so many, uh, where we are in Princeton, we have, we have people that are just really, um, really intense on their their disciplines which is uh, is actually a really beautiful thing uh, so we have scientists that are uh, getting phds and they're studying things i can't quite comprehend we have classicists and uh in our church and i just love there's a there's there's such a level of care and concern and love and specifically uh, for you and just thinking about what does it mean to be an artist in the church and so obviously you're a you're a follower of jesus you you go to church on Sundays, you're, you, you happen to be a writer. Um, for you, maybe what's, and maybe I'll ask the question two ways. Maybe we'll talk about the ideal. Uh, what, what should that be? And then maybe we'll talk about a little bit of your experience uh, as, you've, as your art has been received in the church communities that you have been a part of. So for you, like as you envision that, what, what could that be? Um, especially, I, I think it's important too, with, with a medium like yours, because obviously, if you're a musician, we'd be like, "Here's a microphone, do your thing, right?" Mm-hmm. But these these um, these ways of of telling the story that don't always fit nicely in our liturgical settings, whether that be, you know, sort of high uh, written prayer, whether it be pure like kind of emotive praise and worship, like whatever and whatever in between. Like, I think for you, like, how is that experience? What, what could that be? I guess we'll start there and then we'll kind of get into what's been your lived experience. Oh, goodness. Being, um, well, being a fiction writer, especially being a fantasy fiction writer, you know, I don't, I don't know that there is a, I don't know that there's a way for a fantasy fiction author to directly serve, you know, the church like the local church doing directly what it is that I do. You know, mm-hmm. I can't like sit down and write a novel for the church. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. I, now oh, on no, the way, I think it's, isn't that Christian publishing? <laughs> well, money in that, right? They, yeah. No fantasy. <laughs> that magic. Oh, no. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> there's that one verse you know discussion. Yeah. I know yeah um I think that um now could I you know serve however um where where it's kind of gotten me I, I do think ideally it would be nice um you know well and, and, and well, here, here's where I kind of stumble over this a little bit though too like um I am and have been a public speaker. I have been brought in to, you know, to conferences and um, schools and libraries and things of that sort to, to speak about writing and 
um, you know, to private Christian schools to speak about writing as a Christian writer and things of that sort. Um, so someone like me, I def, you know, I, ideally it would be nice to be, um, supported and promoted, um, supported by a local church, um, in that regard as someone mm-hmm. who has, um, teaching gifts to offer, uh, in, 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 in that sort of speaking environment to be mm-hmm. considered for, um, you know, local, um, I hate to even say this because God, you know, my, my thinking on like events and stuff like that has been challenged a lot in the last few years, like women's specific events and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, ideally it would just be we're nice. we're, uh, we're in egalitarian uh, situation okay so. i was like <laughs> feel free <laughs> and i'm not even sure entirely where i land on all that anymore that's that's totally fine insane. but you don't need to walk on eggshells my wife preached last week so okay. do with that what you will um you know and I, I was a girl who kind of went through a phase where i was when i was a kid where i was like hmm, maybe i'll be a preacher someday and was told I couldn't do that because I was a girl so you know that kind of abandoned that well I mean I was really destined to be an author so it's okay but um it worked out it works out but you know it's hard for me to say what the ideal is because I don't know what it is and it's not like Mm -hmm. every every person who is in any industry you know, it's like my husband's an auditor. It, it's, it's not like he has to be supported as an auditor by the church. But um, as far as the arts and artists are concerned, I know I definitely, you know, don't want to be asked to do a bunch of writing for free. Like, <laughs> just <laughs> what, like, and I say that in the, in the regard that like, I know that art, like actual, like, artists who create art and musicians are often asked to do stuff for free because the arts tend to be very devalued Mm. now i'm happy to you know volunteer services and as a way to serve the church it's just an it's a different sort of thing to volunteer to serve as opposed to being asked to do work that you would you would be paid for Mm -hmm. um, in a professional environment so that's kind of a it's it's a tricky balance um we were the church that we were members of for um a decade down here um and this sound like I'm, I'm i'm being like oh woe is me i'm such a victim but i mean you know 10 years of women's ministry events and things like that um and they even did one event that i remember i never felt at home in women's ministry events ever mm-hmm. though i'm just not that sort of woman but 10 years of those sorts of events they and they they did one that was the focus was on on words and writing and things like that and mm-hmm. I was it was well known that I was an author in the, the church and I was never approached to to speak or to contribute in any way mm-hmm. um so that was always a little bit interesting they did hire a church storyteller at one point it was unclear what he was going to be doing and i'm not sure what that Mm. was um but i wasn't asked to apply for the the job and it's not like they had to ask me to apply for the job but it felt weird that they 
that it, it wasn't, it wasn't posted. It was just somebody who was a friend of the pastor who was hired. <laughs> Nobody does nepotism like the church, right? Yeah, that was, it was a little bit, um, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying that with any hard feelings. I knew these yeah. people, it was just, it was a head scratcher for me. It was like, mm-hmm. I didn't really know what the job was. Um, he was just hired on as the storyteller and I had, we had already been there for, that was like near the end of our time. And I was like, well, I might've been interested in applying for that. Um, uh, and um, it was odd. I was asked to write Sunday school curriculum mm. once, but technically I was not allowed to teach Sunday school without <laughs> my husband being there as the quote end quote real teacher. That is uh, so fascinating in its own right. I, I'm interested in the uh, the, the theological uh, presuppositions there aside, yes. uh, which uh, we don't we don't hold uh, here. But the sense of uh, you know for children, I think you know we've talked a lot about your work honoring young people, and I think that's one of the beauty of. You know, I, I've heard the love in your voice for your audience, um, but then specifically, like talking about like Sunday school curriculum, what what was that experience like? If you could, um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm sort of like, can you divest yourself from the uh, very oppressive uh, situation? Um, because uh, clearly, you can teach the Sunday school curriculum and as as, as well as preach. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that was just. Um... There was a, I can't remember how many, I might've only done it the one time. It may have been more than one time. I'm not sure entirely, but we, we loosely taught Sunday school (laughs) for like four years. I'm, you know, we're no longer at that church. So I'm just going to come out and be honest and say, yeah, my husband was not the teacher. (laughs) we were in disobedience um but i think god was okay with it i'm just gonna i'm just Uh, i'm certain he is (laughs) my husband sat in the front with me but um consider yourself uh absolved thank you never needing to ask for (laughs) repentance yeah you know we have we have our gifts and i have i was the classroom teacher for 10 years i wrote yeah classroom curriculum and i have the gift of teaching and my husband does not and that's okay mm-hmm. we are you know we're given different gifts and abilities um but no i mean the church did know that i was a writer and they knew that um this might sound prideful but i had keen theological insight um mm-hmm. and so yeah i was i was approached and asked to do um some some curriculum writing for a series that they were doing. I mean, it was like write a lesson. And again, I don't remember if I did that once or twice and or maybe even three times. I don't know, I've been sure a few times. And um, but when we were going to teach a Sunday school class, um, co-teach it with um another couple, <laughs> we were, I mean, we were we were pulled, we were we were pulled into pastor's office and and it was made clear that the men would be in charge so it had to be it had to be a co-teaching <laughs> with the men situation you know the women could not teach 
men that was it was a denominational thing you know complimentary yeah. and they're allowed to be complimentary and that's fine but you you know mm-hmm. it was just sunday school it wasn't preaching from the pulpit so yeah I sound really bitter don't i i don't mean to sound bitter it was just no it's you it, know one of the things <laughs> we the, the, situ- the situation of being asked to write sunday school curriculum that i was not allowed to teach yeah, it's, again, cognitive dissonance doesn't ever, you know, like we could we could talk about a lot of things where it's yeah. like, but but one of the things I, I have seen, and even up here uh, in New Jersey, is sort of the the aftermath, uh, if you will, of the fallout of uh, evangelical Christianity, and like yeah. you know, how truly like complex, like again, like at some, I, I know we're kind of we're, we're sort of dancing around having a little fun with it, but at some point it's like no, it's like it's really it's really messed up and really, um, you know, sort of uh, diminishing in a way. Um, but right. but it's, it's been a truly complex thing for a lot of people to unpack. And we've seen that pastorally. It's, uh, uh, no, I don't yeah. think you sound bitter at all. I think, I think you're probably speaking to a lot of people's experience. Yeah. And hopefully even our just kind of like sitting here now is like, there's an absurdity there that should cause us to be like, are we sure? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, to get back around to the issue of being an artist in the church, mm-hmm. I, can't ex- I can't separate the fact that as a writer, as a Christian, as, you know, all these things, I am also a woman in the church. Mm. And I've been all of these things as a woman in a conservative denomination mm-hmm. in the South um, for 14 years. And it's just an irony. It's just ironic to me that, you know, I've had so many people who have read my books within the church. We've been part of two different churches down here, same denomination. Mm -hmm. People who've read and love my books and, and, you know, members of the church who've read and loved my books, who supported me personally, um, mostly women women read a lot of young adult um who yeah who've 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 really really loved my work but none of that personal support has extended to anything where the the church has stepped out to support me either um my our, our current church is is fantastic they're a younger church plant and I don't you know, near a church plant, you don't have a lot of resources. I don't expect anything, <laughs> you know, but we, we, we know that life. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, and I, and, I, and I don't, I know that the function of the church is not to support artists. Um, oh, but well, if, <laughs> it may not, it, it may not be primarily for that, but I think, I think, you know, even talking about those issues of patronage and like what it means to, because again, like if we circle back to the idea of, telling it, telling what's beautiful and good and true. Yeah. And we're, you know, we've been talking about literature, you know, specifically your, your writing, but all of this, you know, we've talked about Genesis and, you know, we, we could get into the, the gospel writer specifically uh, just as a case study and just the level of talk about planning and care. And now they're describing something that happens. So there's, there's a, there's a constriction there, but I mean, John, for instance, the themes he's unpacking. Um, and so you sort of think like, 
the church has always been, we've always been a people of the book, a people of words like that is, that is sacred to us. Yeah. And we have to sort of patronize. Now we're not writing new scripture, but at some level we're called to be seeing a new, like, you know, talking about a journey of purification, sanctification, like we need to be re-immersed in what is good and beautiful and true. And so as I hear you talking, like I sense this, like, no, I think, I mean, yes, obviously our point, like, let us worship God together. That's what we're here to do and live the way of Jesus. But in the midst of that, it's like, what is going to actually sustain us on that journey? What is going to be, you know, the, the, the we don't live on bread alone and uh, allow God to speak to us in a fresh way. I, yeah. I certainly think the artists uh, among us are, are such a powerful voice in that in, in a way that is unique. And I think that's okay for that vocation to have its own um, way that it expresses that. So uh, yeah, yeah I, I sort of hear you talk. I'm like, I'm really inspired to, like how do we how do we excavate that in our community and, and again a church and the arts like we get so utilitarians like how can we how can we make this mean something it's like is it good is it beautiful is it true and perhaps that is enough to point to the god who made it all yeah yeah art is vital to the life of the church mm-hmm. um it's far it's 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 vital to the you know shaping culture and uh, the sustainability of the church. Um, and it's really important to um, shaping women in the life of the church as yeah. well. Because um, women, um, I know that we're seeing a lot more stay-at-home dads these days. Well, everybody's stay-at-home right now. But, you know, eventually <laughs> I think work life will kind of shift back to the norm that we're used to. And, and still... Even so, with everybody being at home, taking care of the kids, still far, still falls more on the shoulders of the women at home, even though the women at home are doing just as much work as the dads at home. Mm. Women are more likely to um, not have access to... Well, it's, it's, it's good, getting back to that part of that conversation we had earlier about how young adult art is not taken as seriously as, mm. you know, adult art. It's not as, it's not as intellectual and st- things like that. Um, and something that I see down here in Alabama is a culture of women who just, they, if they read at all, mm. it's young adult. Mm. And that might be it. And, or it's like they do that and then they, and they do magazines and it's not that women are dumb. It's that they're just not being artistically ministered to. Hmm. And so, um, if the church is going to revitalize the arts, which is crucial, they, you know, we need to see that women need to be involved. It can't be a bunch of white dudes sitting around at the church going yeah um let's us form an arts council there has to be women (laughs) on it who say this is how we reach other women and childcare Mm -hmm. has to be involved that's available to women i mean this is the pragmatic (laughs) this is the pragmatic aspect of it like people have to be available to watch kids for women Mm -hmm for free as a service of the church. 
Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really like that piece has been so so evident. Like this, the whole church planning journey is always like we have a lot of kids at our church, and it's always been like, okay, how do we do this in a way that honors people, honors the kids, mm-hmm. and honors the parents? And there's been times where we just haven't done that well, and it's been such a you know, I, I just that that ties a knot of anxiety even hearing you talk about it. So it's it's so important. I think, you know, talking about, and this is uh, what really put me onto your work was your article in Christ and Pop Culture. I, I was watching WandaVision and I'm not a, I, I, I like the Avengers. I like the Marvel on the screen. I don't know anything about the comics. So I know there's this whole world. I even had this experience where I didn't realize that on the WandaVision shows, they were doing these, these things after the credits. And so in the last episode, the white vision shows up, which I don't think yeah. is a huge spoiler. Uh, just one of those things that happens. Not at this point, yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting there and my, my wife was watching it with me and just kind of half-heartedly. And she goes, who's that guy? And I said, honey, I have no idea who that guy is because <laughs> he had showed up in a, uh, in a previous episode that I had not uh, watched the end of. But we talk about you know, especially as it relates to women. And this is what's so beautiful about the gospels is Jesus, when he gets out of the grave on that Easter Sunday, the first word that he says is a woman's name. Mm-hmm. You know, the first word of the new world is, is a name. It's a woman's name. And, and even the way that that so subtly presses against the tropes that were present in, uh, in that culture. And yeah. you, you talked about this in your article and I encourage everybody to go read it. Christ and pop culture, just Google WandaVision. You'll yeah. find that. Yeah. Um, but, but it is that sense of like, Wanda is being allowed to not just be this hysterical woman who's seen great anguish and suffering, but she is creating out of that. Yeah. And I thought that was such a powerful insight. And, you know, we, I had a few people, I I shared that article around, everybody loved the line. (laughs) She's an Avenger and Avengers assemble like so, (laughs) so great it was it was um, a little cheesy but i i was like i have, I have it, to have to use it it's like the right level of cheese right but it's, but it is even a comic talking, book after all <laughs> it, it is and yeah i've got a lot to learn in that respect but but even talking about so like obviously this last year you know has kind of been encompassed and we'll kind of end on this um mm-hmm. has been has been a sense of like and, and obviously different levels we've all had different experiences with the pandemic but it but there's been a collective grief Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe even a collective denial of grief. I mean, we've 500,000 people in this country have died uh, related to this, this virus. And I don't know if we're sure what to do with that as a culture. We, we kind of, oh, Oprah's interviewing the Royals. Okay, like, yeah. <laughs> let's focus on that. Um, and so how do you, as, as an artist, as somebody who, you know, you don't, you don't have to go into your own experiences with grief, but but understanding that this is the, the way that Jesus re-narrates the world is through suffering. Yeah. And he invites us into that suffering. And you see this throughout his life. You know, he stands at Lazarus's tomb and he weeps. Mm-hmm. And out of the anguish, out of the depth of that grief, like Jesus isn't just saying, I'm weeping because you guys don't understand me. And like, I'm going to go resurrect Lazarus now. Like Jesus enters into that. And yeah. out of the depths of that anguish, there is new life creation I, I think that's such a such an encapsulation of art in the sense of like through our brokenness like we are re-narrating the world 
so for you, as you sort of think about this last year, as you think about even like WandaVision, you kind of think about all these things that are kind of inputs. How do you understand like what, what it means for you to be a steward of that pain and to, to kind of create from that place? How has that informed your work? You know, grief, pain, all the, the big feelings. Um, the funny thing is, not funny haha but just kind of puzzling for me is that Mm -hmm. um I had the hardest time writing this past year that I've ever had in my entire life like I just felt completely stimmied like I couldn't I couldn't produce anything I couldn't create it was just like the like done just tapped out um I think it was because we'd never been through anything like what we all went through last year. I mean, collectively as a culture, we've never experienced what 2020 was. I still, to me, it's still 2020. It's just, it's just, <laughs> right. it's persevering, you know, but, um, <laughs> well played. but the, um, when I, one of the comments I get from readers frequently um, upon finishing the, when they finished the Gateway Chronicles is that it helped them through some season of grief. Um, those are difficult emails to get. You know, I'll, I'll hear from like a 14-year-old who will be like, um, my dad just died two months ago and I wasn't able to grieve until I read your books. Like, wow. how do you respond? Yeah. How do you respond to that email? Um, thank you. Uh, like um and I I went through some periods of grief when when I was writing um but not not like I mean the worst thing I went through when I was writing is I had a miscarriage and that was that was that was as hard Mm -hmm. as miscarriages ever are um and that but that was the the only real huge life grief I had ever had aside from that Mm -hmm. I didn't really know a lot about grief when I was writing the books. So it was really surprising to me that um, the most common feedback that I, I got was that the books were helping people through grief. People were emailing me and saying, how do you know so much about death? How do you know so much about mm-hmm. sadness? And I was like, I really don't know. The grace of God, I guess. And maybe these books are meant to help people through, you know, these sorts of times. I, you know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure. It was just really strange to me. Um, and, uh, in 2017, my, one of my closest friends died of brain cancer. And that was really obviously a terrible time of grieving, but it, I was still able to write. Like I took, I took maybe three months where I didn't, I didn't do much of anything. And then I continued to write between 2017. And now I think I wrote five books and then and all my articles and then 2020 hit and it was just like I don't know I don't know what happened like I mean I I was able to keep up with my articles fairly but I didn't write much of like I felt like my brain atrophied last year it was Mm. it was like I was just walking around in a sea of fog and I know that that's depression, but it was like, you know, the kids came home 
and never left. We've all been stuck in this house for a year and, yeah. uh, you know, every aspect of my, it, um, like focus and energy has been on keeping them happy and not mm-hmm. like a false happy, but just like managing everybody else's mental health and well-being yeah. so that we all don't fall apart, you know? So WandaVision and other people have said this, this isn't an original thought to me, sure. but WandaVision was like just the show I needed at the right time because mm-hmm. it was like a masterclass in how to grieve. It was like the stages of grief after all of this. And my grandfather died at the end of 2020. So that was like the first floodgate, you know, but I'm finally starting to feel like I can write again. And so when I wrote that article on WandaVision, it was like emotion. Oh yeah. Emotions are healthy. Emotions Hmm. are good out of emotion can come creation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a writer, I, I don't have to be crippled by everything that's going on. Now, obviously, there's a lot of just busyness and distraction with having the kids in the house and yeah. homeschooling four children and now trying to get the house ready to make a cross country move and all the things that we're doing. But yeah, I'm back to actually planning a new novel and trying. And, and writing and things of that sort that make me feel alive and make me feel like me. Mm-hmm. So the act of creation is tied to all the emotions and all the grief. You just have to, you know, open things up and let yourself go through the stages of grief and actually mm-hmm. feel the feelings that you need to feel. Yeah. So, yeah. I think, I think that's such a powerful just uh, even a word as we sort of transition from this, this 2020 persevering uh, and we have some, some signals of hope, you know, culturally that, that at least from the pandemic and there may be some, uh, some circumstances that are alleviating finally, but just, but just the sense of like allowing yourself to grow, go through the stages of grief and, and to trust that you're not broken. You're not like, yeah, there's not this, this thing that has been forever unplugged in your life, but that in order, the only way to get to the other side is through that, that sense. And I, you know, I think you, you said that so well about WandaVision. It was, it was sort of a masterclass in like trauma therapy. It was, you know, and, and, you know, for for any of you who have seen the story, like she's been through a lot, a lot of people in her life close, close to her have, she's, she's watched pass away. And so how do you, how do you reorder the world? And, uh, you know, even like for her, like this sense of like creating order and beauty out of that uh, was, was really powerful. But I, I love what you said too, about just, just giving yourself both the grace to understand the circumstances, like homeschooling four kids at home in, in addition to everything else, but also knowing that there is, um, there is a sense of, of, you know, a purpose that will be narrated on the other side of this, that, mm-hmm. that, that may, you know, come to a, you know, a conclusion that you would not have foreseen otherwise. But, but I think that the emotional element of this is so important. Uh, and I think, especially like as a pastor, like I've talked to so many people recently who are just like the, like the church thing, like, I'm just not feeling it. 
And like, I'm on the other end of the line. Just like, yeah, me neither. Like, this isn't church. Like we're, we're watching a screen talking about consumers. Like it's yeah. just insane. Um, and so the, even the glimpses of hope that we might be together in and what that will look like. And yeah, sure. Maybe different, but, but you know, that, that a new future will be born out of that grief and, and pain. I think that's so beautiful. Um, Katie, I just want to thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, we, as, as my conversations tend to do, I don't know about yours, we kind of meandered all over the place and I, yeah. I appreciate that um, very much. And just, I, I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your your work. And too, I, I think you, you've you given us a vision for so many different things. Like uh, how do we honor artists in our midst? How do we honor women? Uh, what does it mean to tell stories um, that, that point to the beauty of Jesus without having to say it over and over again? I think that's such a powerful thing. Uh, to cultivate, it becomes an apologetic of beauty, uh, which I think, you know, you talk about the world we live in, like there's just this competition of narratives and stories. Um, like the only thing that's going to break through is something truly transcendently beautiful. Yeah. And so how do we, how do we bear witness to that? Um, do you have any sort of last thoughts? I don't want to put you on the spot, but anything you're just like, if I could, you know, sort of tie a bow or say anything, I would love to give you the last words. So if there's anything there, if not, we'll just edit it out. So, Well, I mean, I just want to say thanks for investing and in reading, you know, first book of the Gateway Chronicles. Um, yes. Since I didn't get to say that earlier. Uh, and I hope that you continue, put you on the spot. <laughs> and hell, I will. And, you know, for me, it's like, it's such a joy because like, I mean, I mentioned to you earlier, like, um, our daughter's reading Narnia right now. And that's been yeah. a gift to go back through. And so like going through this the first time, there's always this eye of like, at some point, like I'll get to read this. And again, like strong female characters, like there's just this beautiful vision too for them of like what it means for them to to find their place in the world. And yeah. uh, I just appreciate that too, about your, about your work. There's a sense of, of, of strength attached to all the, the, the characters, especially the women. So appreciate oh, that. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, there, there aren't easy, there aren't easy answers to a lot of the questions that you were asking me because these yeah. things, they just require a lot of discussion and we're at a, a tricky point. Um, I think we're kind of at a tipping point in, in the culture right now um, as far as how Christians interact with culture Um and yeah. just a wholesale rejection of the culture war narrative and um, trying to figure out um, how, how do we do this thing called being a Christian artist, um, being a Christian who is an artist, who is a storyteller, how do we best honor God with our gifts mm -hmm. um, in the church and beyond? Um, so I'm yeah. still trying to figure it out. And I know a lot of other people are too. So um, I'm just happy that there's, there's grace, um, for all of this and for when I inevitably say something I shouldn't or make mistakes, <laughs> um, I'm happy that there's grace to cover it. Mm. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for that. It's such a beautiful vision. I appreciate that so much. Thank you for having me again. Thanks.